0: Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. So in his book uh, entitled, I Surrender, a man by the name of Patrick Morley gives a huge misconception that he believes exists in the church. He says, and I quote, he says that we think that we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief, he says, without a change in behavior. He goes on to talk about an idea that He says that we think somehow that we can have revival without repentance. You know, if you heard uh, last week, we started this message on what I entitled going from conviction to conversion. We kind of made the same conclusion that Mr. Morley made. The only way that we can really go from being convicted and that. By that, I mean like having these religious beliefs that most of us could agree with. Things like the Bible, things like Jesus, things like church attendance, things like morals that, that we would say we, we have those convictions, but the only way that we rem- we get to conversion from just simple conviction is what I would say is repentance. Many simply just want to add Jesus to their lives. Many... Many just want to add a little bit of church or add the Lord's Supper to a weekly gathering or some religious ceremony. Many people just simply want to add something religious and hope that that means that there's a true conversion. And we've been looking and studying the book of Daniel chapter 4 and we have come to the conclusion that that is not necessarily the case. We started in Daniel chapter 4, and I remember telling you last week, we looked at a 50,000 foot view, and, and this morning it'll hopefully make a little more sense, but we started out with this king who'd been convicted, right? God had intervened in his life at different points in time, and he had this conviction that yeah, there was this God out there that maybe was among all the other gods that were there, and he knew that this God was powerful, but yet he had never been truly converted, We see this king cowering in his bedroom in panic. God had given him a dream that troubled him deeply. And then we see a king crowing on on his rooftop in pride. We we see that he says, hey, look at my vast kingdom and all that I have made and, and all that my hands have done. But then we saw a king crawling on all fours in a pasture because God had humbled him deeply and God had executed his sovereignty in his life. And then we will see today... A king contrite on his throne in praise. In other words, finally a king that has been converted. And in typical fashion, we tried to do more than we should have last week, and we covered 33 verses. The first 33 verses in chapter 4 is what we covered last week. And here's what we covered, just to bring you up. I'm not going to preach it again. I'm just going to try to set the stage for this morning's message. We looked at the way that the Lord does this and moving us from conversion I mean, conviction to conversion, he follows a pattern, and we see it here in the text. First of all, the Lord seriously expresses the reality of salvation. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar, we find in the first few verses, a very terrifying dream. The Bible says that it frightened him, and really, he had to go get some help. And we talked about how that the Lord will begin to seriously express to you the reality that He desperately desires a relationship with you, wants to save you from your sin, and He'll use different means and methods to get your attention. And then we said that the Lord then begins to specifically expose the rebellion of sin. In other words, the Lord's just not interested that you're not as moral as you should be or that you don't believe correctly. That the Lord always makes this about sin. He always makes it about the rebellion of sin, and He specifically goes there. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream about this great big tree, and then this tree gets cut down, and Daniel tells him, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree, and the reason you're going to be cut down is because you won't turn from your sin, nor will you turn from your iniquity. And we explained the difference between sin, transgression, and iniquity. The Lord will begin to do that. You will begin to see and you'll begin to think that those Bible thumpers out there, all they want to do is just talk about sin. And I need you to understand because that's what the Lord does, because you need a savior from your sin. Then if we don't repent, if we don't come under the the Lord trying to get our attention and, and the Lord really talking to us about our sin, the Lord does something amazing. He steadfastly enacts the rule of his sovereignty. We talked about how that for one year, God gave tremendous grace to Nebuchadnezzar to to turn away from his sin, to turn away from his iniquity. God gave him an entire year. Really, God had been giving him his entire life to do this. And then all of a sudden, one day, the word of the Lord is fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar turns into a man who we can't recognize as a man. He has been given the the mind of an animal. He's crawling around. He's got hair that looks like eagle's hair. His fingernails are are crazy. He's he's eating grass and, and living with animals. We talked about that when we don't turn from sin... God gives us over to our sin. And we talked about that sin will always take you further than you want to go. You didn't necessarily wake up one morning and want to be where you were at. But when you don't turn from your sin, it'll take you further than you want to go. It's going to keep you longer than you ever anticipated staying. And it will cost you far more than you ever wanted to pay. You will end up like an animal. That's what sin does to us all. And so then what happens though? That's where we're at today. What happens after the Lord enacts his rule of sovereignty? If we if we now don't come under what the Lord is trying to do to tell you that He loves you and He wants to be in right relationship with you and the thing that's separating is our sin, then what happens after the Lord enacts His sovereignty? The Lord is not doing that just to just kind of get at you and just to punish you. The Lord has a reason for him enacting his sovereignty, and it is yet a very another loving thing that God does. What does He do? That's where we will find ourselves this morning in Daniel chapter four, verses thirty-four through thirty-seven. Daniel chapter four, verses thirty-four through thirty-seven. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to know that I would love for you to open it there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's some Bibles in the seat pockets are under you and around you. And let me just help you here. If you are new to the Bible and new to the things of God, please don't be embarrassed to do this. I had to do this for years in my life. Go to the beginning and it has an index. And that index will tell you, it'll tell you all the books of the Bible. It's going to say big letters, Old Testament, big letters, New Testament. You'll see the different books in there. And then it'll tell you what page number that we're on. And look there and you can find that. And then there's going to be some really big numbers and there's going to be some smaller numbers. Those big numbers are chapters. We're going to be in the big number four. And then we'll be in the little number starting with 34. So if you want to ask somebody to help you around you, please don't be embarrassed. I know that might be very humbling to do, but I'd rather you be with me and learn this process than not. So if you would, then let's stand together and let's read the word of the Lord. Hear, hear the word of God. The Bible says, but at the end of that period, what period is that? Well, that's where he's eating grass and, and all this kind of stuff. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. Where did he raise his eyes, church? He raised his eyes toward heaven. That's super interesting. And then something amazing happens, and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High and praise and honor Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will. And the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Oh, my goodness. And at that time, my my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. And so I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. May God bless his word, and may you be seated. Here's the fourth thing we see. After the Lord enacts his rule, the next thing the Lord does is the Lord supernaturally enables repentance of salvation. The Lord supernaturally enables repentance of salvation. Let me say this in a very different way. Unless the Lord, through the power of His Holy Spirit, does a supernatural work in your heart, you will not repent. You and I do not have it in us to repent unless the Lord first moves. Our hearts are so wicked, we we won't choose that. In other words, what I'm trying to say is you just don't choose one day. You just don't wake up and say, I'm going to move from being convicted about these things to truly being converted. No one has ever chosen salvation unless the Lord first moved in their life. You have a part, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, and I'll let y'all work all that out. I just know that the Bible says this in James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. It says, God is opposed to the what? But he gives something to the humble. You see, you don't choose to be humble. That's a gift from God. God gives you grace to be humble. And then it says in James 4.10, it says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, now here's my responsibility. I thought, I thought humility was something that God gave. Well, it is. Well, then how am I supposed to humble myself? Well, you are. It's God doing it and you doing it. And I'm going to let all you in the room who have different theological persuasions work that out. All I can tell you is is unless the Lord supernaturally starts this thing, you and I will never choose to repent. You just don't wake up one day and go to church and say, you know what, I'm going to be a Christian. That is not what happens. But let's look in verses 1 through 3 in the text because I want you to see how Nebuchadnezzar gets here. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 1, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the people, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Lord most God has done for me. You know what that is? That's the work of repentance. All the signs and the wonders that God did for him. This was bringing him to this work of repentance. How great are his signs? How mighty are his wonders? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion from generation to generation. Thank you for that opening book, Mark. Let's go back to the very end. In verse 34, he begins and says, Listen, I raise my eyes toward heaven And my reason returned to me, and he goes on to make some crazy declarations about God's everlasting kingdom, and and God doing everything that God does. That we no one can stop God, no one can really even question what God does. And then he says, "God bless me deeply." This is crazy. It reminds me of a passage of scripture in Psalm chapter one twenty-one, verses one through two, that says, "This I will raise my eyes to the mountains." From where will come my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar knew those words, but I can tell you what, I know that he looked to the God of heaven from where came his help. You see, previously, I don't know if you caught it, but in verse, let's just kind of look there, in verse 33, he's eating grass like a cow ever watch the cow eat grass is their head lifted up or is it pointed down it's looking down it has to see what it's eating and see so you've got to notice what the author is doing here. It's, it's very intentional he's telling you my eyes were looking down but then something supernatural happened and i lifted my eyes to look to heaven And it's when you and I turn to the Lord Jesus and lift our eyes there that repentance starts. We don't have it in us to do this. The Lord then begins to enact and enable repentance that leads to salvation. So let's just stop one more time. And that's a big word. And and most people in the church, I think, could define that. So I'm not trying to impress you. But for those who maybe don't, I want to just kind of help you understand what repentance really is. In the New Testament, we find it. it's a Greek word. It's metanoia. And so what it literally means is it's literally a change of mind, but it has deep implications. You've heard me say this maybe hundreds of times, but, but I need you to understand really what repentance is. Think with me. Repentance is when God begins through the power of His Holy Spirit to change my mind about who He is and about my sin that leads to then a supernatural change of my heart that then leads to a definite change in my behavior. So God first begins to speak. So the scripture is so clear about renewing our mind. We begin to think a certain way. The Lord begins to impress upon us, what you were doing is wrong. This was sin. This was rebellion against God. And so we're, we're going this way, living our own life, and, and we're, we, we have no really desire. We're kind of convicted a little bit, feel maybe guilty sometimes about what we're doing, but we have no intention of really stopping or thinking about how it's affecting God or, or any of that kind of stuff. That's not what we're worried about. We're just worried about us and how we can make it forward. We're, we're here and then the Lord like we weren't planning on this like this wasn't something that we were thinking about we were just here and then we hear something through the preaching of God's word through through a man of God a woman of God somebody declaring the gospel the word of God and it begins to speak to our mind in such a way that it stops us dead in our tracks And then we feel ourselves saying, I have a change of heart here. I no longer want to do this. I no longer want to feel this way about this. I'm feeling inclined toward the things of God. I'm feeling inclined that I'm breaking the heart of God. I I begin to have this change of heart. and, And in the meantime, it's moving me. So when now my behavior begins to line up with what God says, and I no longer want to do that, and I no longer do what I was doing, I am completely moving in a different direction with the way I think, the way my heart is inclined, and what I begin to do. That is what repentance is. And you and I don't choose that. God does that work in our heart through the preaching and teaching of his word. You see, what happens, though, is a lot of us begin to fail. And so we say, you know what, this wasn't working. Maybe I'll try some of the things that God says. And and then we try this and we fail. And then we go right back to this. And I'm trying to tell you, just getting caught doing something wrong isn't what repentance is. You can have a sorrow that you failed. You can have a a sorrow that things didn't kind of go right, and just coming to church and doing some things is not repentance because you're not filled with godly sorrow that you've broken God's heart. You're more concerned that something failed for you. Bad times, bad circumstances, bad outcomes, bad things aren't enough to bring repentance in your life. Bad will never bring you to the Lord. It just won't. John Calvin said on this text, he said, Nebuchadnezzar's insanity alone didn't wake him up. God's spirit had to give him eyes to see. God's spirit has to move you from looking down to looking up. Verse 34, the text says that "That I raised my eyes toward heaven and then my reason returned to me. Well, see, he wasn't in control of that change. That's the crazy thing you need to understand. When when God lifts your eyes up to heaven, when this work starts happening, then all of a sudden, now your reason, the way you're thinking, and the way now you're starting to move, that's what happens with repentance. My reason, you just begin to say, wow, I have so missed it for so long. Oh, God, please have mercy on me. That wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's heart before that. He was up on top of his house saying, look at all I have done. Something happened. This is not something that you and I choose like you chose what you ate for breakfast this morning. It's not just a conclusion that you come to. The Lord God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, must do this in your life, and all you do is simply respond to what God is doing. The Lord did this in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and then Nebuchadnezzar responded to what God was doing. And I believe with all my heart after studying this that Nebuchadnezzar moved from being convicted about God to being totally converted to his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he entered into a life-changing relationship with the one true and living God, the one he acknowledges now as the most high God because the king's reason returned to him and he immediately did what a repentant person does and that is he truly worships God in spirit and in truth. Notice in the midst of all this, in verse 35, he gets quite theological. Verse 35, he says... Well, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Okay, you got your theology right there. What is man, David, would say that you're even mindful of him. But he does according to his will. That's great. Not according to your will, Nebuchadnezzar, does the earth move, but but according to his will. And then no one can stop God. No one can throw it off his hand. That's some good theology. And we'd be really careful to even question God and say, what have you done? That's some really good theology there. This is good. This is awesome. Nebuchadnezzar gets his mind back, and he also gets his kingdom back. And see, everything that you think that you're losing by not repenting is the very thing you're going to lose if you don't. And when we repent, God restores things in such an amazing way that it's crazy. Because when you are restored back to God, you're restored back to the source of blessing on your life. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar has. It's a deep work of humility. This is crazy. God sets him back on his throne, and then it says that there's more greatness added to him. In verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar is not taking credit for it. He praises and extols the, the honor and the king of majesty. And then he says, let me just tell you why I do this. Because all of his works are right. His ways are just. And then he basically says, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Now, pause right there, because a good old country boy like me could preach the just I could preach the leather off that text right there. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. But that is not how Nebuchadnezzar is using that. Nebuchadnezzar is using it to say, I praise God he humbled me. I praise God he took away my pride. He didn't use that as a verse to beat people over the head. He used that as a verse to say, look what God did to me. Look what God did. He took a man caught in such pride. And the Lord, through the work of repentance, has humbled me and he's blessed me. That's what God does. Repentance is really a deep work of humility in our lives. That's what it is. Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar earlier, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to stop sinning, stop your iniquity. And Nebuchadnezzar wasn't able to do that on his own, or he would have done it a long time ago. The Lord intervened, and Nebuchadnezzar responded. You see, repentance means to stop and turn away from sinning, not just cut down on sinning. I'm going to pause here just for a minute, because I want you to understand the difference Nebuchadnezzar was told to stop sinning, not just cut down on it. I mean, think about it this way. Just imagine a cop pulls you over for failing to stop at a stop sign. And you begin objecting and you begin to say, well, you know what, uh, Mr. Officer, I-, I slowed down even if I didn't come to a complete stop. And the officer says to you, You know what? That isn't good enough. You were told to stop. The sign said to stop, not just slow down. And you go, Well, come on, officer. There's really not that much of a difference. I mean, haven't you got anything to do than to pick on innocent people like me who just kind of coasted through the stop sign? So then the cop yanks you out of the car, puts your hands behind your back, and starts laying into you with pressure on those handcuffs and just raising your arms up in the middle of the back. And you go, stop, stop, stop. And the officer says, well, do you want me to stop or do you want me to slow down? God says says he wants you to stop, not just slow down. See, when God moves on your heart, you move from being just convicted about your sin that you should slow down. Repentance is that now you want to stop with all that is in you. You're saying, man, sin and that way of life is something that I need to stop. And the reason you can't is because maybe repentance has never happened. See, that's what I'm getting at. Because you maybe somehow figured out, well, I just feel bad enough about this. I'm just going to start doing things and going to church and all that. But the Lord has never done a deep work of his spirit in your heart. You've been convicted, but maybe you've never been converted. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has an excellent definition of repentance. In question number 87, I was looking at it this week. It says, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of sin, turn to God from it with full purpose of and endeavor after a new obedience. I want you to understand something. When Jesus Christ called you to come unto himself, he called you to a lifestyle of continual repentance. It's not something you can work up. It's not like just turning over a new leaf and just deciding to be better. It takes a deep work of God and the Lord will supernaturally call upon your heart after he's been messing in your world and trying to get your attention and he will just take some things from you and then he will come to you in a moment through the power of his Holy Spirit and tell you please stop and then you get to respond or not and if you do stop there's something incredibly that happens and that's Point number five, the Lord satisfactorily entrusts with the restoration of salvation. Lord satisfactorily entrusts with the restoration of salvation. You see, when you have truly been converted, you won't look for anything else. Your soul is satisfied because you realize his blessings are deeply good. That's why it's for a converted person, that's why they're so more attracted to live righteously and to live a lifestyle of repentance is because they've tasted of the goodness of God when there is repentance. And that goodness of God and that mercy of God and that forgiveness of God, it just keeps me wanting to focus upon God and his kingdom. And though I struggle with this over here, that is not what I, I, my focus is on because it's just been so good with God. I don't want to do anything to lose the goodness of God. And it's not about morality. It's not about just choosing better. It's all of a sudden, I understand how good God is. Verses 1 through 3, Nebuchadnezzar talks about that. He says, I want everybody in the entire world to know about this. (laughs) Every nation, every tribe, every language. And that should be your desire as well. Once you have been truly converted, you're going to want to tell everybody. You're going to want to take it to every tribe, tongue, and language. This would have been like a, a primetime TV presidential address. All the blitz on social media. If Nebuchadnezzar would have had it in that day, he would have put it on every screen, every, every iPad. He would have put it on every phone. He would have put it everywhere. Look what God has done for me. And he says, peace be with you all. Because you know what has happened? Nebuchadnezzar through the conversion through repentance and placing his faith in the Messiah what has happened is he's personally met with the prince of peace that was in that fire he's been he was an enemy of God and now he's been made a friend of God he was once in the darkness but now he's been brought into the glorious light he was one under the wrath of God on his sin now he's under the grace of God because of God's son what happened Nebuchadnezzar what happened Verse 2, he tells you what happens. He says, it seemed good to me to declare the wonders which the most God has done for me. God has supernaturally done something in my heart. I've been saved from my sin." And then he says in verse 3, he says, and how great is this God? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And then in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar ends it and he says this, now I praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. There's no God like my God and what he does and who he is and how he works with people. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And check it out. I am now a member of that kingdom and I'm going to live everlastingly because God through his grace has put me in that kingdom nebuchadnezzar is saying i've been changed i've been changed i can't tell you how it all happened i can just tell you that it did i was once walking around like an animal caught up in my sin but now god through his grace has caused me to repent and i've called out upon him for mercy and now look at me look at me i have been restored to my throne You're telling me, you're telling me that in a day like that where people were killing each other to get on the throne, that Nebuchadnezzar could take seven years off and then come back and everybody said, hey, welcome back? That's a supernatural work of God. And see, that's what God does with you. See, in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, it says this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a what? A new creation. The old things passed away, and behold, what? New things have come. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, listen, I am not the same man that sat on that throne before. I have been humbled. That's why we said there's now a contrite king sitting on his throne in praise. The Lord entrusts this to us. He entrusts this restoration to us. And he wants you and I to do exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. Do you see the meta narrative, the big picture of the scripture, that when Nebuchadnezzar was moved from conviction to conversion, when he called upon the Messiah and that Messiah saved him it so radically changed his life, he wanted every tribe and tongue and nation to hear. Do you see the the big picture? Because when the Holy Spirit did the same thing in the New Testament, we read in Acts Chapter 1, verse 8. But when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, when you have repented and turned, the times of refreshing may come. When you have been saved and the Holy Spirit has taken root in you, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. Do you see what God is up to? Verse 36 He says, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Let me break that down to you, what that may mean to you. God, when you become a believer, can restore relationships. He can restore uh, blessings. He can become, he will become a friend to sinners who were once enemies. He can reconcile those who are opposed to you. He can make children of Satan turn into children of God. He can forgive you so that you can forgive others. He entrusts you with this work now of what it looks like to be one who has been converted. I'm going to take a moment here because I have time. Everybody see this cross right here? Everybody see this? Give me a verbal yes. Thank you. We're going to use this. This is the cross. I'm going to pretend just for a moment that all you people from from halfway here over this direction, y'all are Old Testament saints. Got it? I'm not talking about your age. Let's go from here. Joanna, you get to pick, but I'm going to put you in the New Testament. Right here all the way over, you guys are New Testament saints. Everybody good? The question often comes up, how, was, how do you know that Nebuchadnezzar was saved? He was an Old Testament saint. And so those. was how the Old Testament saints saved. Are there two different ways of salvation? I mean, was Nebuchadnezzar saved just by having this belief in God? No. We've been introduced to the Son of Man in chapter 3. He's in the fire, and that was the pre-incarnate Christ showing up. So Nebuchadnezzar already now has a picture of who the Messiah is. So see, the the Old Testament saints, what they did was is they heard through Genesis chapter three in the first proclamation of the gospel that there's coming this one who he will be struck in the heel. He will stomp the head of Satan. And all these Old Testament saints were looking for that one who would deliver from the power of death because Adam and Eve died surely in the garden. And God said, one's coming that's going to fix the death problem. And the death problem is because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, which is a sin problem. There's one coming that's going to fix our sin problem. Just keep your eyes he's coming and all the prophecies in the old testament are telling us about that day when jesus came and there he is in the city of david unto you is born this day a savior who is christ the lord so all of you were looking forward to this moment when the messiah would be born live a perfectly sinless life and go to a cross to die to bring man back in the right relationship with Him. old testament saints were looking forward to that cross and that messiah All of us New Testament saints, we're over here. You know what you and I are doing? We're looking back. We're looking back to this cross and we're saying, that Messiah that was prophesied over here, he truly came, he truly did that, he lived a perfect life, he died, was buried and resurrected to bring man back in the right relationship with God, to forgive us of our sin and to make us alive in Christ. This Messiah is the one that now you and I are looking back to. And I'm telling you, that Messiah showed up in that fire and so radically messed with Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind, he couldn't get away from it. And then through Daniel's preaching to him about who that Messiah was, Nebuchadnezzar put his faith in this Messiah just like you and I do. There isn't two ways of salvation. It had always been one, and that is through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In case you missed it, This points to Jesus Christ in a couple of different ways, but I'm just going to point out one thing here on a chart that I have. First of all, we're going to compare Nebuchadnezzar and Christ. Nebuchadnezzar is a mere man, but Christ is the eternal God. He shows up in the Old Testament before he's ever been born. Nebuchadnezzar is a sinful man, but Jesus Christ is a sinless man. Nebuchadnezzar was merciless, but Christ Jesus is merciful. Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself, but the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself. Nebuchadnezzar aspired to sovereignty, but the Lord Jesus Christ aspired to be a servant. Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself and was humbled. But Jesus Christ humbled himself and was exalted. Can I tell you this, friends? From beginning to end, Daniel chapter 4 is about how Nebuchadnezzar moved from conviction about Jesus to being converted to Jesus. It was a king cowering in his bedroom in panic, crowing on a rooftop in pride, crawling on all fours in a pasture, now contrite on his throne in praise. As my band comes, I wonder if you would indulge me for a moment. I read this story, maybe you've heard it before, but I I read this story. I think I've read it numerous times. It's in a file that I have, and I go back to it. It There's a young man named John, and he received a parrot, a bird, a parrot. He received this parrot as a gift, and the parrot had an attitude and, and really a really bad problem with his language, his vocabulary. The bird really was very rude, obnoxious, and just simply cussed all the time. Well, John tried and tried to change the bird's behavior by consistently only saying polite things, playing soft music, and anything else he could to try to get this bird to behave a little better and to clean up up his mouth. Well, finally, John was fed up and he yelled at the parrot and the parrot yelled back and cussed him out. So John picked up the parrot, shakes him, and then it gets even worse. John shoves him into the freezer. After just a few moments... The bird is squawking, and he's kicking, and he screams, and then, then finally it's just totally quiet. Not a peep is even heard. Now fearing that he's killed the bird, John quickly opens the door to his freezer. The parrot steps out and onto John's outstretched arm, and, and the parrot says this. He says, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my unforgivable behavior. Well, John was completely stunned at the change in this bird's attitude and his behavior. And so, so, he, so he just simply said, man, what's going on? And the bird replied, well, can I ask you, what did the turkey do? I want you to know today that, that I am I, fighting the urge to tell you about the realities of hell because I want you to understand how God really wants to save you. I don't want you to ever have to be put in a situation where you're so scared into believing that you change. Never want to scare you into Jesus. But can I just tell you today that if you want to move from conviction to conversion, it simply happens in moments like this. When a man or woman of God stands or sits across from you with a Bible in their hand or Maybe on their phone or you hear preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens is, is you hear someone say something like this. You and I were created by God to live in a relationship with him and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. God created us to glorify him and to enjoy him. That's what the garden was all about. But you see, man quickly decided to do his own thing and he turned from God and disobeyed God. And man ate from a tree that God said, please don't do this because in the day that you do this, you're surely going to die. And man ate of that tree and man began to die physically because he was separated from the tree of life, couldn't get back in. And then he immediately died spiritually because he could no longer be in the presence of God. And so the Bible tells us that that just like trees beget other trees, just like horses beget other horses, men beget other men. The problem is is that we're sinful men and women, and so we beget other sinful men and women. So we're born with a sin nature. And so from the moment that we're born, we are a sinner. We're going to sin. It's not that we go out and sin and then we become a sinner. No, it's that we're sinners and we're going to go out and sin because it's our nature. It's how we've been born. The Bible says that, that man, for, the, for those of us who have sinned, that the wages of sin is death, just like it was for Adam and Eve. You, you and I will we'll never move beyond that. We're, we're, we're destined for hell. We're destined for separation from God. But you see, God has said something, though. God has said that he would send one to pay the penalty for our sin that he would send a perfect sacrifice one who was born of a virgin why would he necessarily be needed to be born of a virgin because listen if men beget other men and sinful men beget other sinful men if Jesus Christ was have been born of man the way you and I are he would have inherited a sinful nature so Jesus had to be born through the Holy Spirit so that he wouldn't have our sinful nature so that he could live a sinless life because God demanded that a life be given, a human life be given to forgive us of our sin. So God in the, put on some flesh, was born through a virgin and lived a sinless life and went to a cross to die. Why did he die? Because the wages of sin is death. Why was Jesus on the cross? Why was he separated from the father and said, oh my God, don't forsake me because the wages of sin is death. It means that Jesus would die physically and Jesus died spiritually on our behalf. So that then he, when he rose from the grave. He could ascend into heaven, and the Father would accept His sacrifice because it was His own sacrifice that He made on our behalf. You know why? Because the Bible says that God demonstrates His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that if you would just confess with your mouth, watch repentance if you would confess with your mouth that you no longer want to be the lord of your life but that you would repent and say you want jesus to be your lord and that you would believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you would be saved saved from what saved from physical death because one day you're going to get a new body And you're going to live forever and save from spiritual death because the moment you trust Christ, you are born again and the Spirit of God comes inside of you and you now have immediate access to God the Father. And see, I can't talk you into that. But right now in this room, if you sense something going on in your heart and you cannot explain it and you know that you need this Jesus, you have been convicted about those things, but you can say that has never happened to me. I have never repented. I have never turned and said, God, I'm turning away from my sin and I'm trusting Jesus and Jesus alone. Have mercy, on heart. And there was never a point in time in your life where you know that happened. You were not always born repenting from your sin to Jesus you didn't were always born believing in Jesus there came a point in time when you made that choice and if that's never happened to you today this invitation is simply this would you respond to what Jesus wants to do in your life so would you stand I'm going to have some men and women to join me down here at the front. We're going to pray and we're going to sing. Father, I pray that now you would move in a deep way. In Jesus' name.